We have been studying Romans since January, and uh, we're moving from a section that was on what we might call the doctrine of grace, God's generous uh, work to answer our sins, to redeem us, to rescue us from sin. That would be chapters really roughly 3 through 11 into a section now, chapter 12 to 16, that talks about how we're going to respond to God's generous grace. Now, I use that word grace. I want to define it for you. Grace is God giving to sinners uh, His favor, His undeserved favor. That might be sort of a very general definition of what grace is that God gives His favor to those who didn't earn it and didn't deserve it. And Paul starts by telling you that's what's going to happen in the very beginning, that God says there's a righteousness that comes as a gift through faith, a righteousness that isn't earned or achieved or maintained by us, but one that is given like like clothes that we would put on, that someone might give to us and we would wear it. Uh, It isn't something that we purchased. It isn't something that we made. It isn't something that came from us at all. It was outside of us and given to us. And and, and that is God's grace. It answers every problem in our heart that sin has created. Every lasting effect is being overturned. And God is restoring you and me into the image of Christ the way that Adam and Eve once before sin reflected God in purity, He's restoring that in us by His grace and for His glory. And last week, Roy was showing you from the first two verses of Romans 12 that as you see the, this merciful, gracious work of God, the only thing that makes sense is to respond to it with your whole heart. To lay yourself down as a living sacrifice offered to God day after day after day. It is the only thing that makes sense. It is the only logical response. Well, what does that look like in real practical terms? That's what the next few sections are going to show us. Practical ways to live out a living sacrifice. In particular, what does it look like to respond to God's grace in the church? That's the passage we're going to read in just a moment in chapter uh, 12, verse 3. I'm actually going to begin reading in verses 1 and 2 for, to, to remind us of the context. But before we do that, I want to pray. So let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are utterly dependent on you for our next breath, for our hope in eternity, for any righteousness that is in us. We are dependent on you. And we are dependent upon you to understand and apply and take in, and to become healthy according to the Scriptures. So we pray, would you help us understand your Word and see your grace and how to respond to it. I pray that you would help us lean on Christ again and again and again, and then to honor Him with our lives because of what we read and because of your Spirit's work as we read it. We pray for your blessing on the reading and study of your Word, that you might be pleased to work in your church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Our passage is Romans 12, 3 through 8, but we're going to read verses 1 and 2 to start. So Romans 12, verse 1. This is God's Word. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is God's Word. It's completely true. And it is utterly trustworthy. A number of years ago, when I had fewer miles on my knees, I found out about a a local uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday lunchtime pickup basketball game. Uh, Met those three days a week, played every uh, every every Monday, every Wednesday, every Friday. Played for about an hour. And the rules were pretty uh, well defined. This was a group that had played together a lot. They played to full court. Played to 31 by twos and threes. And the rules were essentially this. The first ten people who showed up uh, divided up roughly even teams, five on five. And then whoever showed up later would become the third team. The team that won the first game would stay and play the next team. And then after that game was over, the, the team that had just played one game would stay on the court. And the team that had been waiting would stay on the court. And so everybody played two games. The ages for this group were roughly mid-twenties to low-sixties. And the talent level was about as varied as the age. A number of the guys had played Division One basketball. Now, for those of you not in the know, Division One means teams like Mississippi State and Alabama and Florida and those kinds of teams. That's high-quality basketball. And some of the guys who played in this group were very good. And I got word of it and showed up and saw who was playing, and they let me in, but I was really, really nervous that I wouldn't fit in this environment, that I couldn't handle the level of competition. Now keep in mind, just as much as the age was different, so was the talent levels. And, and, but I was really insecure about the whole thing. And so when I would get the ball in the first couple of times I was playing, I, I would sort of begin to freeze up. And, and, and though I had played a lot of basketball in my life, I, I didn't feel comfortable out here, and so I'd quickly look to see who I could get the ball to, somebody besides me, and not make a mistake. But it wasn't long till my opponents knew that's what would happen. And so uh, they didn't have to guard me. And it hurt the team because now we were playing essentially five on four when we were on offense. And one of my teammates said, man, you belong out here, play ball. And just that little bit of encouragement helped. And then I could start contributing to the team. Now, 
there was another guy out there uh, who was probably the best player. He was probably a, close to 40, which I don't think is old now. Uh, but he had played for Clemson University. Now, Clemson is in the elite of the elite conferences for basketball and college basketball. And so if you play for Clemson, you've got to be pretty good, and he was still pretty good. In fact, when he was on a team, almost always that team won. He was the best out there uh, playing with us. And uh, when he would show up in the first ten, rarely, but at least on occasions, his team would lose. didn't happen very often. But when it did, and he was supposed to sit and wait for the third game, he would always leave. He sort of felt like, I'm, I'm the best one out here. I don't feel like I ought to be sitting. I'm entitled to be on the court. And if I have to wait, I'm not going to stick around. That was sort of his, his idea. And it wasn't a huge thing if he didn't want to wait around. You know, that's not really a great big thing. It was a little bit of an annoyance because it messed up our numbers. But it wasn't huge. The, the big thing you see is, is there's an underlying attitude there that's not very attractive. I'm telling you those two things because there were two problems that seemed to be evident on the court. Because you could miss shots and you could make mistakes and you could make bad fouls. We were all okay with any of that stuff. There were two things you couldn't do. One is uh, think too lowly of yourself so that you didn't contribute to the team or to think too highly of yourself to think that you were above everybody else. Those are the only two things that really hurt us out there. And as it turns out, those are the two things that hurt us in here too. For us to be in the church, we can't really think too highly of ourselves. That's destructive. The passage tells us that we are one body, individually members one of another. That God has made us in our most healthy sense to be bonded together so much that one body is what comes to mind. That when one person hurts, it hurts the rest of us. That when one person is happy, the rest of us are happy. That when one person experiences a triumph, all of us experience a triumph. That when one person experiences a, a, a failure or a loss, we all experience it because we're one body. What happens to the arm happens to the waist. What happens to the eye happens to the whole body. We're so tied together that in our healthiest form, Paul says we're like one body. So what does that really look like? How is that supposed to act? Well, key principles that you must put in place is that we can't think of ourselves too highly. We can't think we're superior to the other parts of the body. But we can't think of ourselves too lowly like that we don't belong. Those are the two errors. They're going to keep you from being members one of another. You see, the person who thinks too highly of themselves is going to think, I only have what I can give. I don't need what I can take. And so a key part of the connection is the dependence on another person. And they'll cut themselves off from it and they will cut you off from being able to really walk with them in the faith. And so thinking too highly of yourself sort of tears at that one body uh, reality that we're supposed to experience. But thinking too lowly of yourself, thinking you don't have anything to contribute, that you don't really belong here, that you don't fit in with this group because of something about you, your history, your past, your 
intelligence, whatever it is that you feel like says, I don't fit with these people. When you think that, you say, I don't have anything to offer, and I'm just a drain on the people, and therefore you don't create that interdependence. You cut yourself off from us, and it's not just you who are weaker, but all of us. We're one body. But maybe more significantly than these practical arguments is that the idea that you could think too highly of yourself or too lowly of yourself is really deeply and profoundly opposed to grace, to God's grace. If God's grace is true, if, if God's grace is what makes the church, then we cannot think of ourselves too highly and we cannot think of ourselves too lowly. Let, let me show you. In verse 3, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Because of grace, don't think too highly of yourself. That, that's what he's saying. Why is thinking too highly of yourself and grace opposed? Well, if, if you think about it, here's how we come to think too highly of ourselves. I'll look at someone and I'll think I am smarter than they are. Or I will think... I have a little more theological knowledge than they do. Or, I'm a little more active. I'm, I'm, I'm doing more stuff than they are in the church. I'm pulling my weight. And I don't think they really are. And I begin to feel, because I think I have more to contribute than this other person does, then all of a sudden, I'm superior. But underneath that attitude of feeling superior is the sense that it is my contribution, it is my theological knowledge, my intellect, my resources, that what's what makes me part of this body. But Paul says, no, no, it was grace that brought you in. It was God's unmerited, undeserved favor that was given to you by His own initiative. Let's remember, if you will, what Romans has said to us. It said that every individual in all of human history has been guilty of sin and therefore condemned before God, deserving the righteous, eternal punishment for their sins. Every individual starts there. And every individual has been enslaved to sin, unable to free themselves, except that God, by His pursuing, initiating grace comes into the slave's life and says, I'm breaking the chains and I'm setting you free because I give you this gift not because you sought me, not because you deserved it, not because you took the first step, but because God wanted to show you His love. It is by grace that everyone in this room is here without exception. And therefore, if we've all come in from the same position, we've all got the same position in here. We're all equals. It's the same grace that makes you fit. And so we can't think of ourselves too highly. It wasn't because I was so in tune with God that I listened to the Bible and I said, oh yes, that's what I was supposed to hear. It wasn't because I was just a little bit smarter than the guy who heard the same sermons but didn't respond to it, and I did. It was because God was gracious. 
It wasn't because there was something in you that made you respond to God. It isn't something in you that makes you able to serve in the church. It is God's gift to you. And so there's no way for us to look on others and feel superior. When I was doing RUF at at Clemson, I remember walking down a hallway in one of the dorms and I saw the sign of a different campus ministry, one I didn't work for. And I said, oh, if only they could come to ours. Then they'd have something. And about two steps later I said, that was really ugly and sinful and self-righteous. And it made me realize, I keep thinking it's because I'm doing something right that, that I get God's blessing. And it makes me superior. And Paul says, if it's by grace, you can't feel that way. Because we are all here by grace, no one is superior, but because we are all here by grace, everyone has a place. A place to contribute. A place to be active in what God is doing. Look what he says next. It's not just that you don't think too highly of yourself, but to think with sober judgment. Now, sober sounds, well, boring. It sounds like uh, you're supposed to sit quietly and frown. But the idea of sober here is really more like thinking well, as opposed to thinking, well, drunkenly. I don't know if you've ever been around someone who drank because they were trying to drink away some pain. If you have, you know what happens. It makes them numb to the pain, but the pain doesn't really go away. And so you get this person who's drunken, and they're just saying, woe is me, and how miserable life is. And, 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 they're, and they begin to lose all kinds of, um, of, of judgment and, and discernment. And, and they make things wrong. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson on this very passage, talked about his uh, encounter with uh, the, the sort of drunken impropriety. He was on his way to a church meeting. And he saw a person who was unstable on their feet and, and, and well, drunk. And they were beginning to step out into the street in front of a car. And so Ferguson grabbed him and pulled him back. And the car wishes by. And the drunken person, he says, demonstrated how poor his judgment was when he turned to Sinclair Ferguson and said, you are the greatest man I've ever met. Ferguson goes, that's how I knew. He didn't know what he was talking about. We can't have a sober assessment of ourselves when we're sort of drunk in our own misery. When we look at our past and say, you know, I don't really belong in this church because I have this history. Because I don't contribute enough to the you know things that go on in the church. I don't really fit in here because I'm not smart enough or I'm not uh, generous enough or I'm not whatever you want to put in there. I've got this huge problem and you don't know about it, but I know about grace. And grace comes to people who didn't belong and makes them fit. Because God is gracious Everyone has a place and something to offer because God gave you that place. And it doesn't matter whether you responded to the gospel and made a profession of faith when you were five years old or or when you were 55 or when you were 75. 
It doesn't matter what your history is. It doesn't matter how often you went to vacation Bible school or how much you participate in Sunday school. It matters what God has given to you. And He has given you His Son. And so you have something to give to the life and health of the church. We shouldn't think too highly of ourselves because grace says we're all here by grace. No one's superior. But we shouldn't think too lowly of ourselves because grace says you've been given something so you can contribute to the life of the church. Here's what he says, verse 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in serving, the one who teaches in teaching, the one who exhorts in exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. He goes and lists a bunch of things and he says, you might fall into any of these categories. So how do you know? How do you know what you're supposed to be doing in the church? Well, in some ways, somebody started teaching and go, hey, I'm a teacher. I started teaching, and therefore I must be, I've liked it and it's worked and I've seen things happen, so I'm a teacher. And other folks have been generous and they enjoy being generous. And so they've discovered, hey, this is where I'm supposed to do most of my work in the church. We all have different gifts. God has given you something different than He's given other people. At least a number of you would hate the idea of standing right here and doing what I'm doing, but I feel at home. Uh, I recently read an article uh, that talked about the sort of propensity we have to say in the church, you need to get out of your comfort zone. It's because we get too comfortable with things, and I don't like to be around people who uh, aren't like me and, and people that I know well. And, and so I'm supposed to get out of my comfort zone so I can be around people who are different than I am. And, and you know, that's not all bad advice, but I want to say to you in some ways, the way you're going to find your place in the church is, is, well, find where you're comfortable. Find how God has made you. Because He gave you a gift so that you could give it to the church. Look at where your resources are. Look at what you have to offer and give it. He, The article put it in the context of uh, extroverts and introverts. I, I want to read a little bit of it to you. The beauty of the body of Christ is that it is made up of all sorts of people and with all sorts of personalities. Introverted people and extroverted people both need to worship God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And an extroverted person may gravitate toward loud, outward expressions of worship, while an introverted person may gravitate toward quiet, humble reverence. Both are appropriate, God-honoring, and necessary in the church. Both types of worship are commended in Scripture. And then he said, you know, extroverts and introverts need to evangelize, but they look different when they do it. One gets big, huge crowds of people and talks to them, and the other meets two or three and makes contact with unbelievers and builds a relationship and shares the gospel over weeks and months and years. Both need fellowship. One loves the large group and one loves coffee with one person. Both need to pursue God, but they pursue God, His words, with our God-given personalities. We shouldn't assume that because someone has a different personality, a different gift, that they're not equal to us. We shouldn't assume that the way people work differently means that there's something wrong. But rather, 
we want to say this is the beauty of the body of Christ that together we make the church healthy. Some of you may need to find places where you can teach the Bible. And that might say, I'm going to take a, take a Sunday school class. I, I'm going to uh, meet with some of the youth and, and we're going to talk about the Bible together and, and work through a, a one-to-one discipleship program. Some of you need to find ways you can link arms with someone and encourage them in the faith. That's what it means, the one who exhorts and his exhortation He walks alongside. Some of you need to find places where you can talk about the Bible with other people. Some of you need to find something a little quieter. The idea of of teaching makes you a little terrified. But if service in serving, the word is literally if deaconing, then, then deacon. In a minute, we're going to elect a few new deacons. And I want to take a moment to say to the current deacons and to those who will be elected, listen to God say, if this is your calling, if this is what's been given to you by your temperament and by the church recognizing and saying, we want you to lead us, then you need to understand part of your role as a deacon is not just in you know, seeing that uh, things function properly and things are in good repair, but that your job is to help this whole body learn to do these things together. You're going to be the one who shows them service and calls them to come alongside you. You deacons are going to be the ones who show them how to contribute in generosity and come alongside them. And that that together we would become more generous. You would show them who does acts of mercy and how to do it cheerfully and say, come with us, let's do it together. To the elders. It says the one who leads with zeal. Because you have seen the zeal of God in pursuing you and calling you to faith. Now he says you elders who lead, lead with zeal, with passion. Make it your desire that the church would be healthy and that we would look like this passage. Model it. Encourage. Exhort teach, see it happen. Because you've seen Christ at work in you and you know this is the kind of work He's doing in the church. And then to all of you, I want to encourage you, don't think that what you might be able to give to the church is insignificant. You say, maybe you say, I'm too old, I'm too sick, I'm not smart enough, I'm not wealthy enough, I have too much on my plate to, to, to be able to contribute to the, to the church. I have, I have a ton of excuses. I want you to hear Jesus through the Apostle Paul say, but I've given you a gift and the church needs it. I have given you my Son and your way of bringing Him to the church by service or, or by exhortation by teaching or or by mercy, whatever it is that you find that you can give, give it. If I can just say it selfishly, it's because I need it. And and, and my family needs it. And the rest of the church needs it. 
It's the way God made us to work. And it doesn't come naturally. It comes because God's grace overcomes our objections. It's the power of the gospel from that article. It's demonstrated when people with wildly different personality types come together to serve, worship, and honor the Lord. Let's make room for everyone in the church. When uh, A few years ago, if I started with a sports illustration, I'll, I'll end with one here. A, a few years ago, I heard an interview with an offensive lineman for an NFL team. Now, there aren't many of those. In fact, uh, most of you probably couldn't name very many offensive linemen. We don't pay attention to those quarterbacks, running backs, you know, wide receivers. Those guys, we know their names. But, but the, the offensive lineman said something that was pretty insightful. He said the only reason anybody would know an offensive lineman's name is because something went wrong. If, if, if the quarterback gets tackled behind the line, gets sacked, it's because the offensive lineman made a mistake, and that's when they tell his name. If he commits a penalty, you hear his name. But apart from mistakes... Those five guys on every team go pretty much unmentioned. And so he says the best game that an offensive lineman can have is to never be noticed at all. But he's pretty important to the team. I am telling you that God has given you a gift that you could give to the church and a lot of times it will go unnoticed. Sometimes it's the ones who get to stand up in front and, and pretend to be quarterbacks. But the whole, the whole team, the whole body, you've been brought here by grace. So you can't think, I've earned this and feel superior. And you've been brought here by grace and given a gift from God so you have something to offer. You have the Lord Jesus Christ. That's true. I urge you to believe it. That we might be healthy together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask you to make your church healthy, bonded together as one body, in honor of the Lord Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us, and led with zeal, showed mercy with cheerfulness, who gave with generosity, who taught and preached and exhorted and served. In fact, he says of himself, he came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And now as we have received Him through grace, let us give grace to one another that your church might be healthy and Christ might be pleased. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.